everybody this is john snyson and uh, you guys should be ready for our next video that's coming out right away it's gonna be with one of the greatest minds that i think that exists on real estate and it's an extremely knowledgeable guy he's been you know over 20 years uh in real estate and investing in it uh, russell gray is also you know a guy that i've had the pleasure to work with at the certain times we were actually some of the first people that uh uh, met to create the red pill expo if you weren't aware of that uh this guy is you know such a magnificent mind and we're gonna actually talk about a lot of different things and one of them is what's coming and in russell's mind it's money universal basic income and everything else so just stay tuned it's gonna be very great he's a really great expert on real estate so stay tuned and you know, watch this video because you gotta you gotta watch it. Hi everyone, this is John Snyzen, the uh, second half of the Tim and John show. Tim is unfortunately we have a little bit of a, a scheduling issue, so Tim is not on right now. But we do have our um, actually my good friend Russell Gray. I've known Russell for many years now. I, I don't know exactly how long it's been now, but it's been uh, three four years I think. Uh, but Russell is a fantastic guy. I actually worked with him uh, through, you know, uh, G. Edward Griffin's group, Freedom Force International. That's actually how I met him. Uh, initially, we were brought to the same kind of scenario. So uh, Russ is, you know, a very knowledgeable guy on both uh, money and economics on top of being a, a real estate professional and knowing a lot about it. So let me just read uh, Russ' uh, bio here quickly. Uh, Russ Gray is Robert's uh, psychic on the Real Estate Guy show uh radio and tv shows russ is a financial strategist with a background in financial services dating back to 1986 as a faculty member uh, for california association of realtors russ taught real estate finance to realtors pursuing uh, the prestigious gri designation here is uh, uh he is a popular speaker and author and i i actually personally have been able to see him many times you know and uh and his knowledge and very Blessed to have him on air. Uh, and of course, uh, Russ is, you know, has the uh, real estate guys show. But then he also, unfortunately not because of the, the whole uh, Corona thing. You know, you can't have your uh, uh, real estate cruises that you also have. Where you bring on guys like James Rickards, Peter Schiff, uh, Jerry Griffin, and so many other experts uh, talking about money and finance. So, Russ, without further ado, uh, thanks for coming on our show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah. So, uh, Russ, let's let's just get straight into it because there's so many things happening in in the U.S. economy right now. And, uh, I don't pay too much attention to real estate, but I do because it's it's a very important metric of how healthy the economy is. Uh, so, uh, I was just looking at the average, which you know not necessarily has a lot to do with, you know, the, the, uh, the current prices in certain markets in the United States, but it shows like kind of an overall health of uh, the United States. And it seems like the, the actual inventory in real estate is draw, has been dropping off uh, quite substantially because of COVID, uh, but ho home prices are still going up. So like, if you could give me like uh, your take on, you know, where, where you think we are currently uh, in the real estate market and uh, where you think we're going. Well, real estate is, uh, I call it a lagging indicator. I think, you know, a lot of economists, people who are running the levers, try to adjust it because they have this attitude that a healthy real estate market means a healthy economy. 
uh, as a driver, and I don't think it's a driver. I mean, common sense says, you know, if you're an individual out there, you don't go buy a house and then go get a job. You get a job and then go buy a house. So the prosperity of your job is indicated by your ability to purchase a house and qualify for a loan. So uh, real estate doesn't drive the market. Now, once that trigger starts, there are things that come after that that are good for the economy. But there's a lot of things that happen, have to happen before real estate. So the, the challenge is, like everything in the economy and the world financial system, it's manipulated by people that have an agenda. It's like finding a dead body and going, hey, you know what? A human body is healthy at 98.6. This dead body we found, let's throw it in a microwave and get it up to 98.6 and call it healthy. Well, that's not true. I mean, that's just not true. Anybody that looks at these debt loads on these private citizens who don't have the ability to print money, private corporations, even municipalities, obviously there's a debt problem. There's a production problem. There's a velocity problem with lockdowns. Uh, and all of that really leads to a, a you know, a, a, a bigger problem. So it's hard to look at the end product that's being manipulated and say, you know, that, that it's healthy, you know, I mean, if people are not, don't have incomes, if you got record unemployment, then you're going to have defaults. You are going to have pressure on the financial system. When this first broke, I asked myself, okay, what is the sequence here? What is the sequence of events we're going to see? I said, okay, we've got a health crisis. I don't know anything about health crises, but I have a friend, Chris Martinson over at Peak Prosperity. He was the first person to tell me about coronavirus. He says, hey, you should pay attention to this. This is going to be serious. It's going to have a big impact. Okay. Well, I trust Chris, so I paid attention. And then as I began to see the lockdowns, I said, okay, now I can see an economic effect of this crisis, whether it's a real disease or a fake disease, whether it's being uh, you know, used as a uh, opportunity, don't let any crisis go to waste, or whether it's a legit thing. I don't know. I'm not qualified to have an opinion on that. What I can see is the lockdowns. And so the lockdowns to me means a cessation of revenue, a cessation of income, and the inability to make payments. And so you have you go from health crisis to economic crisis. The economic crisis uh, leads to a financial system crisis where the bond markets break because payments can't be made uh, and you start getting margin calls. We already saw some weakness in the repo markets. I know you're probably more familiar with that than I am. But again, when I saw those interest rates spike up in September of 2019, I said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but where there's smoke, there's probably fire. Chris and I had a conversation. He agreed. I don't know what's going on, but where there's smoke, there's probably fire. And while we were trying to get our minds around that, all of a sudden, you know, COVID hit. And it gave the the powers that be license to print unlimited amounts of money. And they didn't hesitate. I think 2008 taught them if we don't get in front of this, uh, these financial markets are going to implode. And so it puts a lot of pressure on the currencies, especially the world's reserve currency, the dollar, because they're trying to paper over all of it with dollars. Gold price to me and even Bitcoin to a degree has indicated that there's some concerns about currency. Now, why all of this is going on? I mean, we can put on our tinfoil hats and go into all of it. But the bottom, bottom line is, doesn't appear from a political perspective that anybody's ready, ready to, to call it a day and get back to business as usual, which means there's going to continue to be economic disruptions. You know, maybe we had the massive heart attack and now we're just going to have a bunch of follow on heart attacks, but it's going to be hard to get in any form of rhythm. And I think the first place the weakness is going to show up is going to be in the financial system, uh, in, in the bond market, the credit markets, um, you know, and yeah. uh, and and, you know, we just hit another record low in, in, in mortgage rates. I mean, that's like the 13th time yeah. in 2020. 
that's a lot of trying to pump a lot of air into the real estate market to keep that equity up so those debts don't, don't go bad. Yeah, no, exactly. And the Federal Reserve actually owns, uh, I, I think, Tim, if I'm uh, not mistaken, I think it's a third. If you calculate it in mortgage-backed securities, it owns a third of the total real estate market in the United States in, in size and scope uh, of their holdings currently, because they're constantly buying about five till uh, $8 billion a day uh, in mortgage-backed securities, which is the derivative that holds a whole bunch of mortgages in them. Uh, so th on that side, you see that. And of course, they, they haven't, you know, slacked down. Like the mortgage-backed security actually has been increasing slightly. Like it's, I have numbers on my website uh, that actually I do daily data of the Federal Reserve interventions. And what you've seen is that uh, they constantly have like slowly like kind of uptick in, in mortgage-backed securities. They still buy uh, also treasuries uh, and they have to buy a lot more because where, where they're ending up now. Uh, and uh, I think the next crisis I was talking about in 2019 uh, is what I call the collateralized loan obligations, which is the, uh, the commercial uh, debt on, you know, all these corporations. And then on top of that, you know, commercial real estate now with COVID, you know, is tanking, is, uh, is you know, potentially going to tank this year and next year because of, you know, a, a lot of people are not there anymore and they're not getting the revenue for rentals and so on. Uh, in from those. So I, I don't know what, what do you see, like uh, uh, which markets are you seeing the most impact right now? If you could give us a little bit of an overview over that. Well, I mean, I think the obvious markets are the, the big expensive markets where people are all yeah. packed on top of each other and COVID uh, taught people that they could work remotely. And, you know, Stripe in San Francisco came out and offered their employees a $20,000 cash bonus if they would accept a 10% pay cut and move someplace cheaper. So that's going to impact cities like San Francisco, cities like New York. And you're seeing that people don't want to be on top of each other in this, in this, uh, coronavirus world, uh, you're seeing the impact as those people are moving out to the suburbs and the demand for bigger houses and single family homes. Uh, so, and then, and then you've got the, the, why pay the high prices? Why pay the high taxes? We've said for the longest time, when weakness comes, you're going to see a drain from the overpriced overtaxed areas into the lower priced, lower taxed areas. So the good thing about real estate is it's not a universal traded commodity. It's not an asset class the way you would think of it like gold or oil or a share of any particular stock or bonds because it's not a perfect market. In fact, it's a highly imperfect market. Uh, you can have a three-bedroom, two-bath house that is exact same floor plan, uh, you know, and it can, depending on what city it's located or what neighborhood it's in or when it was built or which way it faces or what the owner-seller uh, motivation is, uh, you can find deals. And so it's inefficient. And so it's heavy lifting for people who want to play the game. But when you do it in any market, even overheated markets, you can find deals. You have to work harder at it. But uh, but it's still uh, there. There's opportunity in real estate that's unlike other asset that you could invest in. Yeah, because it's highly fractionalized, like cities, for example, you know, have good and terrible markets within them. So it's it's very easy for like, I know a lot of people here, uh, actually, one of our uh, old friends, Stefan Arnio, uh, which passed away, uh, you know, uh, just lately, and I know you also had uh, some people pass away in your life. I had my dad just recently pass away as well during this whole thing. So, uh, but uh, Stefan, you know, was very heavily involved here. Uh, it was a multimillionaire doing tons of transactions and he's revived certain, uh, certain neighborhoods actually, uh, which is pretty cool in, in uh, Winnipeg where, where uh, like it's my capital city. I live 
quite far out of it, so I don't have any problems with this code. But uh, within the city, you know, you find tons of different markets because of like it depends on you know who works, uh, who lives there, that works, uh, or, or what's the businesses around all that stuff. It's net migration, you know, what's the diversity of uh, all businesses within you know um, uh, within the city and and, and so on. Uh, here, here, Manitoba, we we do have a heavy leaning towards the financial industry and government. Uh, so we have a like kind of a stable, currently a stable uh, economy, but that's, you know, for others to, I, I've been warning about, uh, we also have the highest debt levels uh, by any province in, in in Canada. So there, there's, you know, goods and bads on both sides. And of course, I, I think that because 44% of our workforce work for either federal, provincial or local government, that is not a sustainable uh, model for, you know, uh, the long run. And, and we kind of seen that now with, uh, you know, uh, we went from a 200 million deficit to 5 billion deficit very rapidly. And and it's just getting worse and worse as we're relocking down the economy now without understanding, like nobody understands the ramifications that it has to, you know, cut down and and shut off the economy completely. You know, you, we, I think we're going to probably lose between 20 to 50% of, of small businesses throughout this whole crisis, uh, like over the next couple of years and throughout like what's happening now. So uh, yeah, we're really, it's under Tim, uh, you know, good to see you, Tim. Tim is uh Back in there. Uh, so, Tim, do you, do you have any uh, question that you uh, would like to ask Russ as well? Because I know that, you know, uh, you guys are actually like I, I told Russ, uh, Russ is in Phoenix as well. So you guys should probably meet up at one time when you have chance because uh, you guys are pretty smart, both of you. Yeah, no, sorry that I missed the missed the beginning of this. Uh, but uh, one of the questions I have, and I guess with you being in Phoenix, this is you know perfect, uh, you know sort of layup for this. I moved from uh, the highest property tax county in America, in upstate New York, here uh, right after the real estate crash. Bought a home in uh, I think in June 2012. Sold it two years ago, thinking that the market was you know too hot, and now I'm renting. And at this point, I can't bring myself to try to buy right now because it seems like things are so crazy. But do you think with the all the influx of Californians? over here that that could be something that could basically outweigh the other natural forces of things that are going on to maybe buoy the real estate prices in Phoenix uh, more so because obviously of all these Californians who've, uh, you know, come in here, especially, uh, you know, in the coronavirus world. Yeah. The top city for in-migration is Scottsdale, Arizona. And most of those people have come from California. And uh, having come from California myself, I know what it's like to sit there and try to make a lifestyle decision about where you want to go. You've got family, you've got friends, you, uh, you know, have history in California and the idea of moving to the middle of the country or the other side of the country, like a Florida, to get away from tax and to have, you know, good quality of life and affordable uh, uh, lifestyle uh, that's a heavy lift. So when you look around, you say, well, I can't go north because the weather is an issue yeah. and the political climate is if you're trying to get away from what's going on in California, you get more of same in Oregon and Washington. So, you know, maybe you look at Boise and Boise seen some growth. Uh, I ended up in Las Vegas for a little while because I couldn't get my wife to leave California. And so it was an easy commute for me. And I started setting up shop in Las Vegas. Uh, but, you know, to get her to live there and to raise a family, I mean, Las Vegas is Las Vegas. I like it, but, you know, it's Las Vegas. Uh, we looked in Utah, Salt Lake City. Um, I'm, I don't care for the snow. If you're a Southern Californian, you probably don't care for the chilly weather at all. And, and that's so quite the op opposite end of the spectrum with uh, Vegas and Salt Lake City, you know, in terms of. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, when you're making that lifestyle decision, what major metro is going to have great education, great travel, sports teams, amenities, shopping, 
uh, everything that you would want to have in a big city lifestyle. I mean, if you're Southern California, Phoenix is the place to come. The only thing it's lacking is the beach, and you're really not really that far away from water, and you're not that far away from snow. So when you get to know it, it's like, wow, this is a great place to live. And of course, the other thing you've got is it's always been a popular destination. Don't tell them that, Russell. Don't tell them it's a great place to live. It's a terrible <laughs> place to live for the Californians. Well, and it's always been, well, if the right Californians come, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. I'm know. from New York, so yeah, I mean, they're probably saying the same thing right. about me. I so. mean, I, I apologize. I tell people I'm transstacial, that I actually uh, should have been born in Texas. It, was a, it yeah. was a fluke of nature that I was accidentally born in California, but I'm actually Texan. But, uh, but couldn't get my wife out all the way out. Out there my family ended up coming here you know because it was affordable for them and they could have a quality of life so you know this is kind of where we've settled at least for now unless they screw it up you know and there's some indications that might be happening but the other thing you've got is a baby boomer demographic and that's a demographic of people that have been moving to the south and into the warmer climates anyway and you know because my wife was terminally ill for the last couple of years while we were here one of the appeals of being here is just really good quality medical care and so if you're a senior and you're like, okay, I want warm weather, I want big city amenities, I want good travel infrastructure, and I need to have great medical care, this metro is going to be on your short list. And so that's theoretical until you start watching human behavior and you start to map it and you see it happening. Certainly, as you well know, it's reflected in our prices and it's reflected in our rents. And that's in the middle of, uh, a, you know, arguably a depression. So there are always going to be winners and losers. And so, you know, as strategically as a real estate investor, I'm interested in markets, product niches and price points that are somewhere in the middle. That always means there's a good contingent of people above me that if financial downward pressure comes, they're going to create demand pressure by moving down into the space that I'm in. If the economy picks up, there's always going to be people below me who are going to move up from the bottom, making their way up to the top. So it's just a sweet spot where you can play. And so you start out looking at states and then you start looking at cities and large metros, and then you know that's when you figured out if this is the place I want to be. Then you then you recruit a, a boots on the ground team, people that know the nuances of the neighborhoods. And I always start with the property managers. A lot of people like to start with real estate agents, but I I like to start with the property managers because if they help me put things in my portfolio that they can manage effectively, effectively from their perspective, I'm putting things in their portfolio and helping them build their business. And it's an alignment. Real estate agents, as much as I love them, are transactionally based. And so, you know, they've been known to maybe blow a little bit of smoke, uh, you know, uh, up your skirt to convince you that a property has maybe got a little bit more potential or is a little bit better than it really is. They make their commission and you and your property manager are left holding the bag. So that's kind of the way I uh, approach it strategically. And I think as people begin to understand the dangers of being in these commoditized paper asset markets where the price is the same worldwide and you know you're competing with high frequency traders and you're you're operating at bubble valuations if you get stuck holding a stock that really doesn't have earnings or pe is just completely out of kilter yes maybe the fed will continue to pump money into the markets uh, but i wouldn't want to bet the farm on that i think i can produce similar financial results in real estate more diversification more safety more understanding more control uh, you just have to do a little bit more work on the front end but I think it's worth doing. No, definitely. I, uh, hard assets is, you know, uh, one of the paramounts that everybody should uh, be able to have in their portfolio because 
uh, with real estate, you know, you get the cash flow from it, uh, you know, on a monthly basis, if you do your work right, if you actually, you know, get more back than you actually invested into it and have to pay for a mortgage and tax and all that stuff. So that that is a very, very important thing. I, I don't know, I, I was going to ask you another question about real estate. I don't know how much you know about, uh, you know, land investments and so on currently, uh, and especially with, you know, uh, I, I see a uh, agricultural crisis in North America where a lot of farmers, they're aging, uh, they're really starting to, you know, that the people that are feeding us are kind of starting to suffer to, uh, you know, be able to do that. And, and especially they are usually at the very far back end when you put new money into the economy, you get inflation, they're usually at the back end receiving the last ones to actually receive that the highly uh, depreciated currency. So I don't know what you've seen or if you know anything um, about where you kind of see uh, land values and especially agricultural and uh, and land that you actually could use to something valuable for that. Yeah, so there's uh, there's there's a couple of things, you know, just philosophically. First, investing is purchasing streams of income, and then the difference between buying paper and buying something real is that you own something tangible or produce something tangible. So if your income comes, if your if your asset is real, like a piece of land, and it produces something tangible, like food, and that gives you income, then yeah, that's a good investment. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing is debt. And you're in an environment where currencies are being printed willy-nilly, uh, you have to always hedge against that dilution. And the best way to do that is if you can buy a real asset with debt and then pair it with things that are going to inflate as a result of the... Um, uh, of the inevitable inflation that is the overt stated objective of the people that are in control, uh, then you have a way to short the dollar and have income streams to service that debt and pay you some additional cash flow. So that's big picture. Coming down to agriculture, it's it's really interesting because uh, I had a chance to meet Donald Trump just before he announced, and I interviewed him in Iowa. And we were the reason we were there is he was the keynote speaker at a land conference, and we were there to learn about farmland. We were already in involved in farmland in South America, and we were curious about what the opportunities looked like in the United States. And the challenge for farmland in the United States, and farmers in particular, is you have high costs of labor, high costs of regulation, uh, and and you have, uh, you have um, a lot of uh, barriers to being able to produce a profit when you're competing on a world stage. So we found that agricultural investing, which we believe in because you want to own things that are real, and essential because, you know, there's a lot of things that will go away, but the roof over your head, even within the real estate space, you're seeing office, retail, a decline where you're seeing distribution centers because moving things from point A to point B is, ne is a necessity no matter where they were manufactured. Um, and, then, and then obviously homes, you know, you see that people maybe don't go shopping. Uh, maybe they don't go to the gym. Maybe they don't go to the office. All of that's happening at home. That's part of what's been driving the boom in single-family homes. Uh, and then the thing that's been boom driving, you know, the boom in multifamily is just uh, affordability. So when you come to the, the agriculture side of it, we do that offshore because uh, it just financially pencils a little bit better. Plus, personally, I like the diversification uh, of not having all your assets in, in, in one jurisdiction and denominated in one currency. And having a current, having a, a product that you can sell uh, to wherever the prosperity is and whichever currency, 
you know, you, I mean, it's like owning gold. You can sell your ounce of gold into any currency you want. It's a, it's a safe pivot point. I can sell, I can sell agriculture uh, to any, anybody with the currency that I, I want to collect. No, 100%. It's, it's very important to under, understand what you said there. Um, uh, you know, I, I know that you're also a very, uh, you're very heavily into educating people about precious metals. Uh, so I, I wanted to also get your take on uh, where you see, uh, you know, gold and silver uh, is going currently. And I know that, you know, I, I watched a bunch of your videos on precious metals and, and you know the the importance of actually owning the physical asset again, actually holding it in your hands, which a lot of people don't understand. They go and buy those papers, as we said on, you know, the ETFs that are basically, uh, you know, overprinted, uh, uh, you know, in amounts to the underlying assets. Uh, so I, you know, that there's a lot of things happening right now uh, with central banks around the world, especially here in Canada. Our central bank, I would say, have probably gone uh, is rivaling Argentina right now and Venezuela unfortunately uh, we've had you know mass amount of uh, printing our gold prices have you know skyward i actually confronted the finance minister of canada uh, uh, he actually just resigned by the way uh, but about selling the rest of canada's gold holdings and he said like gold you know that's a barbarous relegancy you know it's worthless and and since that time it's up 70 percent almost uh, here in canada so uh, you know who's who's the smart guy uh, now uh, but of course he, he got fired because of a, a whole like scandal and everything and now we have a finance minister that has a bachelor in russian history uh so uh, it, it's gonna be a very interesting here in canada we see a lot of printing and of course with the federal reserve you know uh recently you know they just panicked they just you know bought a whole bunch of stuff i i don't think it's done yet uh um russ i think they're gonna get into some more, you know, having to bail out a whole bunch of whatever more assets. Uh, but what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as I said, health crisis becomes an economic crisis, becomes a financial system, credit market banking crisis becomes a currency crisis uh, because you got to print. I think we uh, could be observing a controlled demolition of uh, economies and currencies to get to what the World Economic Forum calls as the Great Reset. Uh, we've been hearing that term great reset floated around for a long time. Um, first started hearing it when I was reading Jim Rickard's books from Currency Wars on forward. Yeah. He started talking about the great reset. So they they telegraph a lot what they're up to, um, you know, and I do tend to be a little bit cynical. So I, I, I hear what people are saying on face value and then I try to look at what's going on. I'm old enough that I've lived a lot of history. I watched Nixon take us off the gold standard live on television. Uh, so, you know, that's how old I am. Uh, and, and so I, I, I look at gold differently than the way a lot of people do. I don't look at gold as a trading vehicle. I'm not interested in buy low, sell high and collecting more dollars. If you're owning gold to protect yourself from paper currency, then you don't really care what the paper currency price of the gold is. You actually hope it's low so you can buy more. Yeah. <laughs> so I denominate the, the wealth of savings, not in dollars, but in ounces. That's number one. And so I don't consider it an investment. Doesn't produce income, not an investment. It's really effective when you pair it with debt because if you have an appreciation of price uh, in dollar terms with the gold, which is what happens when the currency dilutes and you fixed the debt uh, 
to back up a, a real asset that you would like to own free and clear, say like real estate, which produces income, that's a good pairing. And you don't even have to use physical for that because if the price of gold takes off in dollar terms, that'll show up in the paper. And you say, yeah, but then, you know, then they end up defaulting. They won't deliver your gold to you. They'll only deliver the paper, the currency. That's okay because I already have the real asset, which is the real estate. And I will retire the debt and own the real estate free and clear for pennies of what it would have taken me to do it. So that's an effective strategy to short the dollar. And, and so there is a place where you can use the gold paper markets because there's less friction, but you're not using it to accumulate. There's no point in accumulating dollars unless you're doing it against the backdrop of debt that secures real assets that you want to own. The purpose of using inflation is to pay off debt. That's why the Federal Reserve does it. That's why the central banks do it. And if you as a private investor understand that's the game. And you don't get sucked into the buy low, sell high. I, there's some philosophies out there that float around in the investing community that I just think are as bogus as can be. And I know because they cost me a lot of money because I bought in on them. I had a little bit of a traditional background. But buy low, sell high is one of them. When you buy low, sell high, what you do is you, you go from uh, cash to asset to cash. And so you end up back in cash. And if you believe cash is trash, why do you want to make that round trip? Number two is, is you produce commissions on the going in and going out. That's friction. That makes somebody rich, not you. Number two, you produce capital gains, which produce taxes. So that dilutes your earnings and sends money to the government. And then you end up in cash, which puts money back in the banking system, which then they lever up to 10 or 20 to 1, and they make money on it. What do you end up with? Counterparty risk, no interest on your debt, holding a currency that's being diluted. How is that good investing? But yet everybody wants to buy low, sell high. It's, it's, it's like preached like it's the mantra. Kiyosaki's the one that really opened my eyes to that. Uh, when he kept going, you know, he kept talking about the importance of cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. And of course, when I was teaching finance, uh, I realized that equity should be a byproduct of cash flow. In other words, just like in stocks, price to earning ratios, you know, when you value an income producing property, the value is derived from the income, not comparables. It's not like buying a home. I mean, when you're buying an income property like an apartment building, it's based on the cash flow and then the cap rate, you know. So I, I, I don't even denominate net worth. Like it's not asset minus liabilities equals net worth. That's a trap. I was a multimillionaire based on that criteria, and yet I was poor as a church, church mouse and didn't know it until the equity receded. You know, our book, Equity Happens, yes, equity happens, but, you know, the market giveth and the market taketh away. You have to use your equity to accumulate streams of cash flow. That's where I failed. So say, for example, I've got $50,000 a year passive income coming in. And if I were to say, okay, at 5% cap rate, then that means my net worth is a million dollars. And I don't give a rat's rear end what my balance sheet says. The bankers care, but I don't care. The only thing I care about is the passive income. And what's the value of that based on the current uh, the current uh, denominator, if you will. So you can see in an environment where interest rates are going down, the value of that cash flow, your net worth goes up. Same thing like if you own bonds and, you know, and, and, and uh, it's that inverse relationship. And, and when you start to look at it that way, it really focuses you on what you need to be doing. So the precious metals is just a place to store liquid wealth outside of the banking system, outside of counterparty risk, where, where you can pivot into any currency so uh, that you want to. It's portable, it's private, no counterparty risk, your inflation hedged. 
and then you can decide later to step out of it to settle some debt, but you want to be accumulating gold and debt at the same time. And I'll make the argument again, 13th time this year, we've hit an all-time low on uh, 30-year fixed mortgages. I would be grabbing as much equity out of properties as I possibly could, arbitraging that cash flow where you take a portion of your proceeds and uh, invest it to pay 100% of your payment and whatever is left unencumbered, uh, you purchase gold and stick it in your safe uh, and wait. So that's, yeah. that's kind of my go-to strategy right now. Yeah, no, it's an interesting strategy that not a lot of people follow, uh, of course, because they believe that their house is an asset. They use it as a cash, you know, ATM. Uh, I just see that everywhere uh, around where you live, especially in the middle class basically lives and dies with, uh, you know, uh, with real estate prices. Uh, so uh, with that said, you know, that I, I think we're kind of entering uh, a crisis. I, and I think we entered it in 2008, where it really we saw the first crack in, in the block of the US dollar or any other currency for that matter. Uh, and, and so what, what happened back then, now we're seeing, you know, the next phase of that. Uh, luckily there was a, a virus, you know, talk all about that as you said you know if it's uh, true, uh, real or not it was a great cover for the financial crisis and the protests and everything happening uh, but I think we're entering you know the the time when the central banks actually has to step in physically and then print money and just give it well they've done it in some form or shape away oh they're know, gonna the do it again yeah exactly I mean, that's one thing that sure it doesn't matter I mean I know this you know in the US the election is contested and you know theoretically it's undecided and we won't know but at the end of the day uh, you know, the one thing you can count on is there's going to be stimulus. Both sides are for it. The only reason they couldn't get it done is because one side didn't want to give the other side credit. But yeah. when you get to the other side of it, that's all going to go away and they've got to do it. And they have to do it because they have to give people the money to pay the rent so the landlords can pay the mortgages. They have to give money to pay the mortgages that they own on their own properties because if they don't, it's 2008 over again. And the way the Fed responded when this first broke compared to how they responded in 2007, you know, when Ben Bernanke was coming out talking about it being contained, it wasn't going to be contagious. I think they learned um, you know, so sometimes we think that they're completely in control and they never make mistakes, but I, I don't think that that's true. Sometimes I think they're up to things that they don't publicly admit. I think there's something going on right now that is designed to crush small business. You know, you and I both understand it's not about blue versus red, you know, in the United States. It's not about liberals and conservatives. It's not about big government and big corporations or big business. The one thing that's in common in that division is the word big. And if you say, okay, if it's big, you know, then the big is united, then it's big versus little. It's institutions, it's collectivists versus individuals. And so it doesn't surprise me right now that we have government coming out collapsing small business, forcing people either onto the government dole, uh, into a government job, or into a big corporation. Yeah, no, exactly. You get that cycle that uh, that happens throughout history, uh, that you constantly, you know, you go from a centralization to uh, then falls back again as it collapses into de more decentralization again. And I think uh, that brings us uh, to the next one. Uh, Tim, uh, if you could just do me a favor and just record as well, uh, just put on record. Uh, but that brings us into a, a very interesting place that we're, uh, you know, uh, moving into currently where you see a lot of development. Uh, and I think desperacy on the on the part of the central banks is the central bank digital currencies. You know, in 2016, 
uh, Kenner Rogoff wrote a book, The Curse of Cash, uh, where he actually uh, one a little chapter in there was on you know uh, bacteria and viruses and how easy they trans uh, tra you know move with uh, with cash and coins. And you kind of seen that it's uh, in a lot of places. I see that locally or in big box stores. You know, there we would prefer that you pay with you know uh, with any anything that's not uh, you know uh, actual. Uh, uh, actual cash so I, I think you see that eradication and the second of all too is that the banks are really afraid you know recently and I, I don't know how much you've seen I think Tim has said that there's been some of it in the United States but the CDC the the same as uh, the FDIC here in, uh, in the United States here in Canada they've been desperate on the TV constant like especially during March when we had a lot of people I knew a lot of people that were taking cash moving it into precious metals at the time because they suddenly came to me at the time where they got afraid they hadn't accumulated ever but they suddenly got to that point where they actually started to feel scared and a lot of people took out their cash uh, and then moved it into precious metals but in general it was a lot of cash moving out and what we know i actually done research on banks uh locally in canada and some of the bigger banks but uh, i found out that the credit unions are the worst off uh, when it comes to you know having cash to deposit so physical cash you know, in your hand to the their deposits. Uh, and then of course the banks are not even uh, far back behind them. They have uh, usually like between seven till uh, as low as 0.55%. And you see that with a lot of banks here, you know, they, they were struggling. So I think that's the next step that they have to do in order to stop, uh, backstop the, the whole banking crisis that's looming right now. Because what we got to remember, you know, all of these moratoriums and, and everybody that, you know, gotten a stop on, you know, um, having to pay something back to the banks, for example, that is going to come due at one point. And we're not talking about the people that actually have no problem paying it back, but there's a lot of people out there that, you know, is going to struggle actually being able to pay anything when that stop uh, gets uh, released back up again. And I think that, you know, what's going to happen is that's when, you know, I think it's 2021 when you're going to see even more businesses and a lot of people are going to start to really suffer uh, and certain markets, especially the big cities, you know, are really going to start to uh, see a massive crash coming. I think at that time, you know, we're going to see the central banks come in and buy, uh, like they did uh, in Japan, buy directly real estate assets uh, in order to prop up the markets. They're doing it indirectly now with mortgage-backed securities, but I think you're going to see a more direct, you know, purchase of stocks and real estate because that's what, you know, uh, how they make, a lot of people feel rich today is that their real estate constantly goes up and so they just have to you know keep that bubble afloat in order to keep keep the dream alive and stop people from you know you see people in um, uh, you know going to the the food banks right now when you see revolutions throughout history it's always when people have the currency is so devalued that people are struggling to pay uh, and get food with their salaries and I think you saw that in with the yellowest movement. I followed that in France. There were people who were out there in the streets saying, I can't feed myself anymore. You know, when you get to those points, that's when you get uh, start to get the, the, the fast forwarding of this crisis because it's, it's a slow kind of train crash. But uh, from what I studied, the hyperinflations and devaluations, they come within a year. The trust link is broken to the value of the currency and then everything collapsed. So I, I don't know, what, what what do you think you'll see next? And I, I think we're going to see that move to cashless, but uh, then, you know, what can actually, like, how can we mitigate that hit other than, you know, just gold and silver? Is there other solutions that we could do? Like, I know that we were talking about cryptocurrency, you know, how are we going to mitigate being, you know, watched every single place that we go? 
Well, I'm an old guy, and so I theoretically missed the Bitcoin boom not once but twice, you know, because when it corrected back down to six and now it's back up to 18. Personally, you know, I think there's some stuff going on there. You see the world through your lens, and uh, I have a, a thesis uh, that as I've observed o- over time, the thesis uh, is is a little bit maybe different, maybe a little conspiratorial, but but I do believe that we're watching a controlled demolition. And so, you know, in 1989, we passed a tax act that took out the savings and loan business, which were competitors with the bank. In 2008, we had a, a, a subprime mortgage financial crisis, which really destroyed the uh, investment bank, the finance, um, the mortgage banking business and the independent mortgage channel. It pushed everybody into, we effectively nationalized the mortgage business. We've, we have made several runs at nationalizing healthcare. It's no longer a secret. Uh, I think that we're talking about globalizing currency and we're trying to get there. They've talked about the SDR, they've created, they've created all the structure. There are certain uh, powers out there that are fighting against it. Uh, I watched went to work on creating all these bilateral trade trade agreements, uh, currency swaps and so on, uh, doing business with each other and going after the petrodollar and putting in the Asia Infrastructure Bank and the, the Shanghai Gold Exchange. And, and China's, you know, pretty famous for taking other people's IP and copying it. Well, they looked at the IP, if you will, of what it took for America to become the world's financial hegemon, and they're copying it. And they've been at it for 10 years and and they started out being discreet about it. Now they're overt about it. Russia dumped all of its uh, bonds, treasuries and, and stocked yeah. up on gold. So, you know, if, if you could print unlimited money and I'm, I'm reading Stephanie Kelton's book right now, The Deficit Myth. She's a proponent of MMT, modern monetary theory. If this is sincere, there are people who absolutely believe it is impossible to print too much money and that the only indication of printing too much money is inflation, not debt. So if you have uh, inflation, then then you've printed too much money. And of course, they can't get to what they measure as inflation uh, because most of them don't live in the real world where we experience it, uh, like in rent and in, you know, food and different things. Uh, but at the end of the day, they believe they can print unlimited amounts of money. So they're not really worried about fiscal responsibility. Uh, they're not worried. They're not worried about bank failures because they can print as much money as they need to bolster up the banks they want to win, the banks that are on their team. So I think after I saw what happened in the mortgage industry, I talked to some friends and I said, hey, do you think that they're going to go after the life insurance business next? Because, you know, privatized banking, infinite banking, some of the things the insurance companies do that are outside the banking system. The life insurance companies are very strong, very powerful financial institutions. And, uh, you know, so but now you look at where the life insurance companies are and their balance sheets are getting for them. I mean, they're still good, but but they're getting a little bit more problematic, but they don't have the same backstopping. So are they going to take out that channel? I don't know. Are they going to take out the dollar and collapse it to a one world currency? You know, James Rickard says, yeah, we're going to have an SDR, which is how we're going to settle international trade. And then the American dollar will end up like every other currency. Well, yeah, cashless. Yeah, worthless. 
All right. So I've I've got uh, I've got probably eight or eight or nine minutes yeah. before my next thing comes up. So um guessing you get the free version of Zoom where it kicks you off at a time limit. Yeah, you know Tim Tim has the actual version and like Well we usually use my my Zoom, but I was somehow there's a time thing and so we're yeah. usually using mine. Uh and that's John funny because second. you're in Arizona, so you know you you're maybe already used to it that our time zone is weird. So uh, I was kind of ranting a little bit, but I would, um, uh, I think I was talking about uh, the controlled demolition. Yeah. So um, I- And actually, as a purpose, our, our last guest actually wrote a book called The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire. So it's Oh, well, there you go. So I'm back. not the only conspiracy theorist <laughs> out there. Okay. That was the name of his book. So. Go ahead and record. Uh, okay. So I'm just going to, I'll kind of pick back up. You ready? Uh, so anyway, we got interrupted there, but I, th I think the point that I'm making is when you look through what's happening in the world through a, a, a hypothesis, a thesis, a paradigm, uh, then you have to test if what you're seeing happening fits your narrative. And if it does, then you start to think, okay, I'm starting to see things right. Uh, I don't think that they're afraid of the bank system collapsing. They're certainly not afraid of collapsing the dollar or maybe they're doing it on purpose. At any rate, I do think that certain segments that aren't in their camp are, are gonna end up being hurt, small businesses. Maybe it's just collateral damage, maybe not. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a movement to get people into these systems where there's a lot of control, banking, currency, healthcare, employment. You know, when you have that much when you have that much control, when you, people are all dependent for all the necessities of life and they're all kind of crammed into this area, then you have a lot of control. Now you say, well, are these people evil? I don't know. You know, there are people who believe that the natural uh, appropriate population for the planet based on resources is about a half a billion people. And I was so, actually just at the Georgia Guidestones a month ago on the way to uh, the Red Pill Conference. So, <laughs> so okay, that so, says it right so, up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you think, yeah. well, how could you possibly believe that? You know, I mean, it, you see people do horrible things on the street. You see people rape children, abuse elderly people, steal from family, do horrible, beat their spouses, beat their children. You see people do just demented, psychotic, sick things. Why is it such a big stretch of an imagination to think that some of those people could be in positions of extreme power? They could be. Now, that doesn't mean they're all together and they're all collectively evil. I mean, I'm not saying that at all, but you just have to be open to the idea that what you're looking at may not necessarily be what it's purported to be. And the reason I say that is because when you follow the the uh, the narrative that you're you're given, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. That that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would they do that? And either they're playing a different game uh, which, you know, could be the case, or they're operating on different concepts. Like we, we think about, Main Street thinks about money in terms of sound money. We think that you have to pay off your debt, that debt is dangerous. The people who believe MMT, according to Stephanie Kelton, as I'm reading this book, they're not afraid of debt at all. They're not concerned about debt one iota because they know as long as you're borrowing in your currency, if you're, they make a distinction between a currency user, which is all of us, and a currency issuer. And if you are borrowing money in the very currency you issue, there's zero chance of default because you can print whatever it takes to pay back. The danger is creating inflation. So 
if you realize that entrepreneurs are out there constantly trying to create efficiencies and drive costs down, then you can say, okay, prices aren't going up, therefore there's no inflation. What she doesn't account for in her book, and I would debate her on this very topic if I ever had the opportunity, she doesn't account the benefit of the increased productivity that does not accrue to the consumer. When prices go down, people get richer because the same amount of money buys more. They, they act like deflation is a curse. And so, of course, business people are constantly trying to create deflation. So these are two opposing forces. And so the benefit of all the productivity of the people, the innovation of the people is, is, is accruing to the currency issuer who steals it, trying to maintain stable pricing. And so you can say, well, are they, is that evil? I don't know. It doesn't matter. If you're in a room with an elephant and if it steps on you, it kills you. It doesn't matter if it hates you, if it likes you or doesn't even see you. If it steps on you, you're dead. And so I just pay attention to what the elephant is doing and try to figure it out. I don't worry that much about the motives other than trying to project what I think they might do. And I really resist the temptation to project on them what I think they should do because nobody's calling me and asking me what my opinion is, right? Jerome Powell doesn't call me up and go, hey, you think I ought to raise interest rates for us? He doesn't call me. I don't get a vote. So I just try to figure out what he's thinking. And that's why I'm studying MMT right now, because even though I, uh, at its face, I think it's bogus. I want to understand the way they think and why they support it. It's been enlightening. Yeah, Do you think that they'll actually allow that the Fed will actually allow people to go bankrupt? I mean, and we know that it looks like the end of the, this year, a lot of the moratoriums are going to expire. I imagine those will probably be extended. But do you think the Federal Reserve and the Treasury has it in them to allow, you know, millions of bankruptcies? It sounds like they're, they're just trying to have the Fed print their way into, you know, giving some everybody this universal basic income or somehow pair it with a great reset. But I guess the, the bigger question is, just will the Fed allow people to uh, you know, lose their homes this go around? Well, um, I, I think there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. Uh, I think, you know, the old adage, you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. Um, I think the, the main focus is, is, is taking out uh, certain institutions that are competitive to your control. And I think establishing those, in, uh, those institutions that are and putting in the infrastructure to have control. I mean, if you go to the World Economic Forum website and look at their topic about the Great Reset, it's no secret. They feel like they, they, as this group of elites, have to have complete control over human behavior all the way down to how many people you can have at a Thanksgiving celebration or a Christmas celebration in your home. I saw Klaus Schaub today said that they want to have brain scans before they get on airplanes to make sure, you know, what you're thinking and if you, you know, have coronavirus and it's just crazy stuff that, that was yeah. I mean, john and i've done shows on the great reset and it, yeah so it's i saw rand paul talk one time and he says hey i just came through the airport and i just have a question for you and he stood in the pose that you get in when you go through the scanner he goes does that look like the pose of a free man <laughs> no 100 of course not and and have they ever caught a, a terrorist in the history of ever no it's it to me it's conditioning Wearing masks is conditioning. Go watch George Lucas's first film, THX 1138. Again, I'm an old man. I saw it live in the theater when it came out. It was about a dystopian society where people didn't even have names. They had numbers. They were all had their heads shaved, uniform, no sex. I mean, these were gross exaggerations. I just got done reading Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You know, when you go back and read, there's a lot of things that are out there that can help shape uh, a, a paradigm. And I'm not saying that's what's happening. 
But what I'm saying is you're naive to think it couldn't happen. And you have to be aware of the possibility. I disagree with MMT, but I'm open to the idea it could actually work. I'm trying to understand it. But with that said, whether it works or it doesn't work, which I need to understand because if the people who are in power believe it works and they do it, I have to understand if it's not going to work, where is it not going to work? Yeah. I don't think anybody is that concerned about small businesses going broke. I don't think anybody is that concerned about the electorate. I think this election showed that. I think that what they're, they're mostly concerned about is just getting these structures in place and getting most people to go along. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, picking winners and losers. Look at, I mean, Goldman Sachs survived and Lehman Brothers went down. Why? Because Hank Paulson came from Goldman Sachs. I mean, why, why was one allowed to survive and the other not? How was that possibly fair? And here Ford did the responsible thing, forecasting that there was going to be a downturn, rearranged their balance sheet and took out a, drew down a billion dollars of a credit line. So they were liquid and ready to pounce on opportunity, which is what you do. Cash is king in a crisis. And then the government came along and bailed out their biggest competitor, GM, who was completely irresponsible. And yeah, you saved a bunch of jobs. And then took the money to then go overseas to build plants over in China with GM. and Right. You rewarded the wrong behavior. You know, so th th there's there's I, I don't think anybody's perfect. Nobody's in complete control, but they have a way. They I think they have an agenda they're trying to get to, which is complete global. Uh, I'm not going to say global dominance, global control. Uh, I think you could take it to that extreme, but I think that definitely substantial global influence and, and collaboration and cooperation between countries that are all subordinating to national organizations for the betterment of mankind, for the betterment of economy, for the betterment of the uh, the uh, the ecosystem. Okay, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it's a big power grab. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the elephant's motivation is. It only matters what they're doing. And what I see them doing is crushing small business, taking away individual sovereignty. I don't get healthcare choices. Uh, they're gonna, there's gonna be a war on cash. It's already begun. Um, and so, yeah. And and you know, you say, well, what can I do about that? Well, you just continue to exercise as much freedom as you can, uh, and 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 be as free as you can in the environment you're in, and continue to live as free as you can in your investing and your money. Like, you know, our personal mission, you know, I'm, I'm about Main Street, investing in Main Street through Main Street. I hate Wall Street. I watched my dad get wiped out. I got wiped out in 2008. Not a fan of Wall Street. So defund the IRS. We want to defund the police, defund the IRS. So like Gestapo is the biggest police force yeah. there is, right? So defund them. Well, how? Well, not by evading, but by avoiding legally. You know, it's a big brouhaha about Trump, Trump and his tax he just uses the real estate law. I know lots of real estate people who pay no income tax. So if I teach people how to do that, they're following the law. They're not rebels. They're just using the law the way it's written, but they can effectively defund the IRS. Okay, that's a way to play. It's why I'm a proponent of real estate. You know, The same the laws that Obama helped that was there when he was in during the Obama regime. So he was using the laws that, you know, so if they, you know, Joe Biden didn't like what he was doing, then Joe Biden could have changed it. And now he has another chance to change it. But I, we definitely you know, appreciate your time. Appreciate, you know, uh, you coming on the show today. And I know I learned a lot. It's probably the least I've said at any show, because uh, as I sat back and listened and, uh, you know, I'd love to meet up sometime. But, you know, John, uh, you know, thank you for getting, uh, you know, Russell on, on the show and definitely. And where, where can people find you? Uh, you know, are you on? Uh, we see the real estate guys 
Yeah, uh, Real Estate Guys Radio. If I, I write a weekly commentary if they want to read that newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. I mentioned earlier the idea of converting your real estate equity into gold as a way to preserve your equity in case we get a, a pullback in, in real estate prices. And I'm doing a, I'm preparing a tutorial on that right now, a series of videos. If people are interested in that, they can send an email to Precious Equity at realestateguysradio.com. And as soon as it's out, we'll let you know. We have a YouTube channel, bunch of stuff there. Uh, we're easy to find. Podcast comes out every week on your favorite podcast. We've been doing it for ever. I think we're like the oldest people in this space. Um, but it's fun, and we have uh, we have a great tribe. We talk about all kinds of things, so it's not just teaching you how to collect rent and you know plunge toilets. I mean, it's a lot bigger than that. It's really real estate as the uh, as the cornerstone or the foundation of a real asset investing portfolio. Everything that you your financial planner helps you try to do uh, through paper assets, you can do better and safer through real estate. It's just nobody's teaching it to you because they don't get paid to do it. Yep. Thank you for that. So that's realestateguysradio.com. Make sure you check out Russell there. And uh, I know we learned a lot. And uh, John, anything else you want to say? No, I just uh, really appreciate you being on, uh, Russ. And uh, I uh, I would love to stay more in touch with you. I uh, started following you on LinkedIn and uh, I'm going to follow you on the pressures, uh, what you're doing there with the real estate guys. So uh, stay tuned for more. And we'll probably have you on at a later date again when, you know, things get even Great. crazier. So uh, yeah, it's my pleasure having you on, Russ, and uh, you have a good day. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, bye.